0: All right, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. For those that are joining us for the first time or are new with us, we just finished our sermon series on formations in Romans 12, and we're starting our new series. But let's go back to Romans 12 just for one second. It says this in the message translation. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life Always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops wealth for maturity in you. This is the message translation that uh, Eugene Peterson did, and oftentimes i i, I don 't really like using the message for for sermons, but I just felt like the what Eugene did in this translation is he captured so well what we 're trying to do as a church that he gives us this Picture of what our daily life and our, our, our daily living with God should look like. I love that it says, Take your everyday, ordinary life, you're sleeping, you're eating, you're going to work, you're walking around, and place that before God as an offering. Because oftentimes it's in those mundane, those places of, of stillness, and those places where things are ordinary that we forget that we need God that we actually need to live with God every single day. And so with that in mind, we went through Romans and we we talked about that God not only is with you every single day, that God gives you gifts so that you could be empowered by him to do his ministry. And God gives you gifts so that that you... You get to experience him in a way that you've never experienced before. God gives you gifts so that you're able to minister to people that are outside of the church and to give God glory. And so as we talk through all of that, Roman, Romans gave us this picture of our relationship with God, our everyday life with him, and seeing in what he does for us and what he does through us. But how do we actually take that and live our everyday life? That's where James comes in. The book of James is where the rubber hits the road. It's the nitty gritty practical living with people. Yeah, that's the hard part, living with people. James is not just how do you live, but how do we as a church collectively exemplify the instructions of God for our everyday life, that doesn't, life doesn't just happen just by ourselves, but that our lives happen together as a church. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, we thank you for who you are, we thank you for your spirit, we thank you that we get to do life with you. We thank you that you are a God that is present with us every single day. We thank you that you are a God that loves us and pours his grace and mercy into our lives. And Father God, we just pray that as we, we, we come to that place of understanding, Lord, that we continuously pursue a life with you. So Father God, we, we want to just give up all our worship unto you today, and as we dive into your word here. Lord, may you take this word and may it become manna, may it become life, may it become just words of affirmation for us. So Lord, we thank you, we worship you, and we give all praise and honor to you, in Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to James, and we're going to start in chapter 1 where we've gone through a whole season of topical preaching and we're going into what we call expository preaching, which is going through the book verse by verse, line by line. And this is what I, I love to do. I mean, if you've been with us for a long time, we often do this and we often go through books of the Bible just to, to see what the Bible how, how the Bible reads for us and how the Bible is life for us. So James... Chapter 1 starts off as James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion's greeting. So who is James? Well, as we know, James is written by the person of James, and he's also known as James the Just. He is known as Jesus' brother. There are several James in the Bible, but this James as we know, is the brother of Jesus. Did you know that this book almost didn't make it into the canon of the Bible? That the book of James, they almost wanted to take it out of the Bible because of how practical in the everyday doings of of this book, they're just like, does this, take away, would it go against the doctrine of salvation, of being by faith alone? And so Martin Luther, actually, he was one of the champions of actually, we need to take this book out, because it makes us question our, our salvation, because there's so much of this book is about doing. James's letters, if you read this letter, is unlike Any of the rest of the New Testament. A lot of the New Testament is written by a a person named Paul. He wrote most of the epistles. But this letter is not linear like how the rest of the New Testament is written. This letter reads more like Proverbs, where there are vignettes of wisdom throughout and scattered throughout. So it's kind of random. If you read the book of James, actually you could sit down and read it probably in about half an hour. It's a very short book. In my Bible, it's literally three pages, right? So you could take half an hour, read through the book. I actually encourage you guys to actually read through the book as we go through uh, the book of James. If you want, read it every Sunday morning before you come to church, okay? This is my encouragement for you. Just read the entire book every Sunday morning before you come to church as we preach through it. It's going to bring more life, okay? And I want you guys to have life when you guys come to church. But this... This book, like Proverbs, is actually one of the wisdom literatures in the Bible. The person of James only actually became a believer after Jesus died, after his brother died. We know this because during Jesus' ministry, we see in the book of John, it says that even his own brothers mocked him, that his brothers didn't believe him. And it was only after Jesus' resurrection and In 1 Corinthians, it actually lists James as one of the first people that that Jesus actually appears to that Jesus came into belief. That when Jesus was alive, James actually didn't believe, because this is too close to home. You're my brother. How do you claim to be the Messiah? But it's only after the resurrection, when Jesus was nailed on the cross and died, and then appeared to James, that James came into belief. James then became the leader in the, uh, uh, of, of the church in Jerusalem. And he's writing to this exact church who is dispersed. Now the book of James is written, they're pegging it around 43 to 46 AD. Okay? That means the church is only about a dozen years old. It's only about 12 to 15 years old. It's not that old. The church is still relatively new and the church at its conception was persecuted. It was persecuted by both the Roman government because it was a threat to the Roman government, but it was also persecuted by the Jews. We actually find out that James actually is martyred by the Pharisees. So James isn't liked by the Jewish people either. The church isn't liked by the Jewish people either. So we're, we're in this place where the church is being persecuted and his church in Jerusalem is now dispersed that's why he's like i'm writing to the 12 tribes of the dispersion and so they're dispersed throughout throughout the land and he's writing this letter to that church because out of that persecution what their what what james's concern is that the church is struggling the church needs an encouragement because james is concerned about the effect of this persecution and that the suffering that they're going through, the attitude begins to creep in to those people. But James also writes in very practical ways of how do I continue to live without the person of Jesus here? Without the leadership of the disciples and the apostles. The early Christians unlike our, our our time today, we all have moments in life where we don't know how to interact with the church. Whether it's because of our prayer life, our self-worth, or that we lack wisdom, or that we have too much conflict in our life, or we have anger in our lives, or how we struggle in the balance of what is our responsibility and what we need to give to God. These are all the problems that James tackles in this book. The book of James is not an amazing expository of the gospel. That's the book of Romans. James is Christianity in all its confusion, in all of its struggles. It's Christianity in real life. The reality is that there isn't a single person in this room, myself included, or even in the history of the church that hasn't struggled with his faith. And the message of James is is that the gospel is so expansive and so sturdy and that the person of Jesus is so powerful that we don't need to avoid the hard issues of life. That the book of James is a portrait of struggle, of faith that is broken, of faith that is in this broken world that we live in. James is known for what we do, but also... And what we do also needs empowerment of the Holy Spirit. James makes us realize how much we need Jesus to live his th- this life. That left to our own ways, we could either turn away from God because it's too hard, or we become religious in following that we, we begin to alienate everyone around us because of our hearts have become so judgmental and so condemning that we move in the same way as the Pharisees, that we uphold the law without holding on to the love, the grace, and the mercy of God. So this is James. This is the book of James. This is what we're diving into. This is what we're, we're going to study. And James doesn't start with the easy stuff. James doesn't start with the easy stuff. He says this. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness has its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Funny how James starts with this. Why out of all of the things that James starts with trial, remember he's writing to a church that's being persecuted, right? And because of that, they're going through trials. So James has to address that first thing first. He's accounted all joy. But notice what he says here. It says, when you meet trials. Not if. The Western church culture, we consistently paint this picture that when you become a Christian, things won't be as hard as you used to live. Things will be a little easier as long as you trust that Jesus will be there and will not be suffering. That you won't be given more than you can handle. That's I actually love that one. Like everybody's like, oh, you're not going to be given more than you can handle. That's so wrong. That's so wrong in so many ways. What happens when we say things like that is that when a Christian goes through suffering and trials, what what often happens is that people often get discouraged and quit. Why? Because the message that we have sent is one that says, well. If you're suffering, then you probably haven't prayed enough. If you're suffering, then you probably haven't trusted enough. That you're not a good follower of Christ, and that is the problem with the church. That we set these wrong expectations that even Christ can't even follow. It's not if we go through trials. Because if it was an if, it means that you may not go through trials. But it says, when. That means that we will go through trials. So it says, when you go through trials, consider it what? Pure joy. Now that's, that's an awful hard pill to take, right? How do I go through trials with joy? Now it's not saying this. James is not saying this in 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 a place where you need to force yourself into a po- place of joy. It's not even um, trying to 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 get you to be like, oh, the tr- the trial is 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 to be minimized because there's joy in it. No, that's not what James is saying. Okay, James is saying that consider p- pure joy because. What he's trying to do is he's, ex- he's trying to exhort you that trials are designed to produce spiritual maturity. So therefore, because of that, we count it as joy. Oftentimes, when we're in church, we take this verse. And I've done it myself. I'm not even going to point fingers. I'm going to point the finger back at myself. Where someone's going through something hard, and you remember this verse. It's like, oh, consider your pure joy as you go through trials. That's not the advice that people need to hear at that moment, okay? Let's be sensitive about it. Because the the, the reality is that Jesus allows us to go through trials, but he doesn't just allow us to go through trials. He sits in the middle of the trials with us. He doesn't force us to go to the outcome. He sits there and he allows us to go through it. He allows us to feel the emotions of it. He allows us to go through every aspect of it. And so it says that Considering it joy is for something that is after your trial, okay? Don't go around and say, when, when someone is suffering, and say, well, there's joy in this. No, there's no joy in it. Slap them. Okay? If they're, they're going through a trial, don't just go up to them and be ignorant in that, that place of saying, consider that joy, Afterwards, do that. But don't do it in the moment. Because what James actually says is that, for you know, that the testing of faith produces steadfastness. For you know. That means that this is for those that are Christians. Remember, James is writing this to Christians, right? If they're a new believer or they're non-Christian, do not say this to them because it's for Christians. It's for people that already live in a place that know that God is sovereign in my life. It's for people that already know that and have come to a place of understanding of who God is. So that when we go through trials and testing, we know that this testing is to produce what? faith so in this hard time this confusing time what james is saying is that what you're going through should not be surprising to you whatever trials you go through should not be surprising to you but as th- if you're going th- through this as a test now this isn't a test where it's like in grade school where you're 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 passing or failing okay there's no passing or failing in these tests there's no Oh, you got a good grade. There's no grading in this type of test. This test is more about refining, it's a process that, that God takes us through. How many of us are wearing jewelry here today? Right? Whether you have something that's made out of silver or gold or nickel or copper, all of those m- metals were mined, right? All those metals were mined, but in the original state of those metals, what is it called? It's called ore. And ore often needs to go through testing where they test other compounds to it to refine and pull out the purities of that metal. And that's the same thing as this testing, that this testing is actually a testing of how do I refine the process of ore to become a precious metal? What is that metal also have to go through. It has to go through extreme heat. It has to go through extreme heat in order for that metal to be pulled out. This is the same kind of testing that God is, is talking about. This testing is a refining process. It's in a process of seeing how, what kind of grades you get or how good you are in, 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 in standing up to the trial. But God is using this as an opportunity to help you build up your faith and help you come closer to the person of Jesus. That's what it's about. That every single one of these trials is not not to to make you uh, suffer for the sake of suffering, but that these trials are to make you go through a refinement process to know what is important in your life. Because oftentimes when we go through trials we realize what's important. The testing through trials builds out a faith and produces steadfastness. That is means to be strengthened, to make sure that you're not divided in your mind and in your heart. James goes on to say, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. It says that if you lack wisdom to go through your trial, ask for it. Why? Because trials will make you doubt. Trials will bring a lack of understanding and you just don't know what to do. There are times in our lives where we wake up in the morning and we wonder, why, God? Why am I in the situation I am in right now, or what do I need to do, or what have I done that I've gotten myself into this situation? So James says, ask for wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is being able to look at life from God's perspective. Okay? This is what gives you hope, because there's, here's the thing. As believers, we don't believe that wisdom is a set of answers or even a set of theology or even a set of beliefs or mantras or whatever else people think wisdom is. Wisdom that we see here in the Bible. This is key here. Is a person of Jesus. That when Jesus reconciled our relationship through his death on the cross, it meant that Jesus, through his spirit, gives us access to everything that is right, everything that is good, everything that is insightful, everything that is encouraging, everything that is healing, everything that is comforting, everything that is freeing, and everything that is forgiving, everything that you need in that exact moment. This is the wisdom that we ask for. This is the wisdom that we have access to. That God gave us Jesus generously. That asking in faith without doubting. What is doubt? Doubting is thinking that we don't have that access. Right? That we don't have that access to Jesus. That's what doubting is. But what God says time and time again in the New Testament, that God says, I am omnipresent. He is omnipresent always with us, so we, all we need to do is to have that faith in knowing that God is always there for us. This is what in theology we call eminent sovereignty. It means that we could touch him, that we could reach him, that he is near, that he is in the details of our daily lives and that he knows exactly what you're going through and that you could reach out and that you could touch him, that God is near to you. This is truth. But we often struggle with this truth, and we are like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed, unstable in our ways, and double-minded. I know in my own experience, I struggle with this myself because I don't understand how to walk in this fully daily, and I don't fully agree with how God works in, in my life sometimes. The reality is that we don't like the hard parts. We don't like the hard stuff. We don't like trials because it's uncomfortable, so we only allow God into certain parts of our lives. We live in a place where we set up our faith as Christians, and we have systematically compartmentalized that faith into nice little boxes of theology. We have set up our faith like we set up our home. You know what I mean? where we only invite you over when we've tidied up, right? That we, 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 we live in a place where, where you're not invited into my house. For those that have come to my house in the midst of chaos, know that you're a good friend because I just can't be bothered to clean up for you. But we live this way where we live with Jesus in that same way where we only allow God into the tidy parts of our lives. Where we only allow God to, to come into our lives when things are good, when we feel good, when we, when we feel like we have things under control, when we feel like, oh, I'm not being tested right now, I'm not going through trials right now, so God, you're welcome to come in. We set up this thing where our faith needs to be picture perfect and insta-ready, that this that, that we only allow God to see the good parts of our life. But God wants us to live life with him. God wants us to live in the, he wants to live in the mess with us. He, not only does he want to live in the messy with us, God allows our life to be messy, okay? I want the church to hear this right now. That as a person, as a human being, your life will be messy and God wants to be in that mess with you. He doesn't care how you perform. He doesn't care that you don't you don't have everything together. He doesn't care that that your life isn't all picture perfect and put together. He doesn't care about any of that. He doesn't care how much you're succeeding. He doesn't care about how much how much you make. He doesn't care how much you give. He doesn't care how much you serve. He doesn't care about any of that. He cares about you. And he wants to live in the messiness with you. That means he wants to live in the places where you're struggling. He wants to come into those places. You know, every single one of you in your house, I guarantee you have either a junk drawer or a junk closet. I have a junk garage, okay? God wants to see that junk. He wants to see that mess. Why? Because he's like, I could help you in that mess. And I want to help you in that mess. But unless you you go through, and sort these things out, that mess will always be with you. But God says, I want to go through that with you. We've set up our lives so perfectly that even in the church, in how we behave, we only allow God to visit us and not live with us. We've set our lives for God to visit as a visitor and not be a part of our everyday life. Do you live with your wife or your husband or or your your children where you only see them once or twice a week for about an hour and then you see them at the birthdays and anniversaries? No, you don't. Your wife and your children see the mess. They're part of the mess. They cause the mess. They're, they're, They're the reason there's a mess. Right? God wants to be in that mess. Will you let God into that mess? God wants to live with you in that place. God wants to say, come on, let me in. Let me live with you every single day. Through these trials, yes, let me be there. As a Christian, we always are trying to juggle this aspect of what is God's responsibility and what is my responsibility, right? And yes, there is an aspect of I have to take ownership of my faith, right? I have to live out what God has put before me. I have to make those decisions to do that. But I don't want us to live in a place where we're in this constant tug of war with God. I don't want us to live in this place where we're in this constant place where we're struggling with God, because we all want to live in our own autonomy, right? I mean, look at the political climate that we live in right now. Everybody is just talking about freedom and all that. I'm so tired of it. Because this is such an, uh, uh, an exertion of free will in a place where it's, I'm just, I'm just really expressing my own autonomy. This, it has nothing to do with anything else but that. That's the reality of it okay that everything that is out there that is political that is that is that there the that there's a protest about besides the war aspect of it everything else is about our own selfishness whether you're pro vaccine or against vaccine whether you're pro mask or against mask i don't care what it is the fact that you have a stance you're selfish i'm i'm just saying that as a pastoral aspect of let's not Take those sides, but let's just start caring for each other. So whatever that person needs to receive care, do it. If they need you to wear a mask to receive care, do it. If they prefer you not to wear a mask to to receive care, do it. Just love one another. That's completely on the side, okay, guys? (laughs) That's a John thought, not a God thought. But let's see what James says next. It says, let the lowly brother... Boasts in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away for the sun rises with the scorching heat and withers with the grass its flowers fall and its perish, his beauties perish so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of the pursuit it's interesting that james puts this in the middle of of this this passage i believe that this is a, a very pastoral moment for for james he 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 takes you're gonna go through trial all of this stuff And then he's like, okay, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. It's like, okay, this is so completely disjointed. What is this about? James is actually using this moment as a pastoral moment of check your heart. Check your heart. He's asking you, what is important to you? It says, let the lowly brother boast in in, in his exaltation. We live in this culture that's super materialistic, right? Life is all about the pleasures of material possessions. I'm constantly in a place where I'm coveting the finer things of life. Like I want my dream car, which is a Porsche. I want my dream house, which isn't really big. big. I like my sneakers, I like my watches, I like my bags, right? We're constantly bombarded. Instagram, man, they know my they they know my taste. Oh, do they ever? You should see all the sneaker ads on my my Instagram. Like, if I could, I could have like a room just for my sneakers. But what is it saying in this in this passage? Let the lowly brother boast in exultation, and the rich in his humiliation. What a strange thing to say. What James is actually bringing out is. Let the lowly brother, the one that has nothing, the one that is poor, he has no esteem, no power. Yet he could stand and say that I have access to the king of kings and the lord of lords. And that even that I have nothing, that I am rich. This is nothing about being rich, okay? Being rich isn't a sin. But it's about what you pursue. It's basically saying that everything you chase and what the world tells you to pursue, none of this will last. All of it will perish. But it is coming to a place that one day, whether you're poor or rich, when you stand before Jesus, you're equal. That you have the same access to the king of kings and you have the same access to the Lord of lords. So what James is saying is here is saying, okay, now that we have we know that we're going through trials, now that we know that we need to ask for wisdom, now that we have now check your heart. What are you pursuing after? That what I said earlier, that trial brings out what is important to you. So this is that heart check moment, okay? Of that this trial is going to bring out what is most important to you. When you go through trials, what is the thing that you're most worried to lose? What is it? Is it your kids, is it your husband, is it your family, is it your money, is it your house, is it your car? What is the thing that you're most afraid to lose and you know that that's the thing that you actually treasure the most? So James goes into that and says, he goes into this pastoral moment of what are you pursuing right now? And then he goes back and he says, Blessed is the man, nope, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for he has stood the test, and he will receive what? The crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And then he goes into saying, let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desires when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my believ- be- beloved brothers. He reminds us back to that aspect of trial and testing. Of what we're going through is to strengthen our faith. In essence, I want to call this uncomfortable grace. Don't be the person that blames God for our sins. It says that God cannot be tempted. By, and, and that God doesn't tempt anyone. When we find ourselves in sin, we sometimes say, well, God, if you just did this, then I wouldn't have done that, or that I would have sinned. Or if you watch over that situation, then I wouldn't be in this place today. But God says, James says, so that like, God cannot do that. That it is outside of God's character that he cannot do that. That God will not put you in a place where he will tempt you. That he will, he will, he will tempt you to do wrong. God will not do that. He does not do that. Who does that? Pop, question, pop, pop quiz here. Who does that? Who tempts us? The answer is you. It's your heart. It's your inner man. It's what is important to us. Oftentimes, when we fall into sin, we realize that we fall into this sin not because Satan's out there tempting you all the time. We give into that temptation because we desire it ourselves. That the biggest tempting, the big, biggest temptation in our lives is ourselves. It's our own desires. It's, 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 our, it's our own mind. It's our own heart. That this is not God. God says, I, God cannot do that. It's in, not in his character to be able to do that. He's holy. He's, he's, he's completely unable to tempt you. What is God able to do? What God can do is he says that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variations or shadows due to change of his own. Of of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be kind of first fruits of his creatures. That's what God is. That's God's character. That's what God wants to give you. That every good and every perfect gift is from him. That there is no variation or shadow due to or any change of him, that God doesn't change. This is who God is. God is only able to give us good gifts and perfect gifts. This is, the, this is his true character. And so oftentimes we ask, why, then why do we have to go through trials? Well, trials is to, like I said, to build us faith is to make us strong. It's not to harm us, to take us away. But it's an uncomfortable grace that allows us and reminds us to be steadfast in who God is for us. That's how James starts off this book. That's how James starts off his letters to the church. Because he's like, every single one of us goes through trials. Every single one of us will eventually go through trials, even if you're not in a trial right now. And I'm sure many of you in this room have already gone through trials. And as you look back, you do consider it joy because in that trial, you've learned, you've grown, you've developed in your faith. Where that as, as you learn, you grow and you develop in your faith, that you could actually pass that faith on to other people as well. That the knowledge that you've gained from it, the wisdom that you've gained from it, you could give that to others and that you could impart that onto others. That these trials are not only for yourself, but it's for the church because we live collectively as a church, right? We live together as a church so that we can uplift each other when we actually go through these trials. Something that I've gone through may be similar to something that you are going through right now. And because of that, I could help you. I could give you the promises that God gave me so that I could encourage you to continue pursuing who God is for you. That's the same for you. You probably have gone through something in your life that is extremely hard. Someone in this church probably is going through the same thing. And you can be that person to encourage them, you can be that same person to come alongside and say, I know you're tired. I know you're struggling. I know that you're, in your heart you just feel broken. But I've gone through this, so I'm going to help you lift your arms up in this time. I'm going to pick you up because you can't stand. And I'm going to go through this with you. That's what it's for. That's what living with God is every single day looks like. It looks like us being sensitive to what God has to say to us so that we can say that to others as well. It's us allowing God to be in our messy, that in the mess God want, that, that God lives in with us and that we live with each other in the church. I know this could get very uncomfortable very quickly because you're, you're like, John, you're asking me to be messy. For those that have OCD, I used to have OCD until I have kids. Now I just, you, you have to deal with it. There's, my car has goldfish everywhere. My, my, my house has goldfish crumbs everywhere. And Pocky stick crumbs everywhere. And who else knows? There's a lot of sticky stuff. I don't know what they are. (laughs) I once was OCD about cleaning. You could ask my sister about that. But God's like, I just want to be in the messiness. But I want the church to be able to live in that messiness with each other that the church isn't a perfect place, that you don't have to be perfect people that to to come together, that we can actually do this together, that in, in and amongst everything that we're going through, in and amongst everything that is out there. And the world, honestly, in my opinion, looks very bleak right now. Honestly, the world just, there's so many terrible things that are happening. But as a church, We can still stand together. As a church, we can still support each other. As a church, we can be in that messiness together. Can we do that? Are we able to do that together as a church? Because God wants us to live that way. That Jesus wants us to live that way. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you, Lord, for this message. We thank you for your word. We thank you for an encouragement that even through trials that you are there with us, that even through trials, we could ask for your wisdom to go through it. And even through trials, we have the church to go through it with us. So Father God, we just pray that in this trial that we know that this is a testing to produce faith and steadfastness in who we are. So Father God, we just pray, Lord, that we can lift each other as brothers and sisters up towards who you are, that we could continue to to uphold your glory, uphold your, your, your power, and uphold who you are, and the greatness of you, and the glory of who you are, and that as a church, we become that representation of who you are, in amongst all the messiness, in amongst all the confusion, and all the chaos, Lord, that you are still there, and Lord, remind us that you are there to walk this through with us, in Jesus' name we pray.
1: Amen. Man, what a great word John brought there. It's just so wonderful when sometimes it's just nice to have a change from these kind of big theological concepts and just break into something that just affects our everyday lives and the things that we go through. And, you know, just a couple of thoughts that just really struck me were, you know, John was talking about our trials aren't diminished when when we reach out like there is still a process that we have to walk through you know when we when we pray and when we pour into God and we, when we bring him into our trials I believe that we we shift the way the trial happens but you know if we look to the example of how to live on this earth as, as a as a faith believer we look to Jesus and if you look at the trial he went through at the end, I don't think there was any diminishment there. He felt every lash. If there was a way to pray to God and just all the, the pain and suffering would go away, um, I believe that with his connection, he probably could have done it. But he felt everything. He felt every rebuke. And I think... I think he also felt something that none of us ever feel and that is God had to turn his face from him so you know it's important that we don't underestimate what people are going through when they're going through trials that we don't try to tell them they just need to to pray it away praying is a very important part of walking through any trial and I believe God does bring relief to pieces and he is going to shift things to good things, um, but we still have to go through that refining process. And I kind of had an interesting thought when John was talking about that. You know, we talk about that all the time. I mean, I grew up in the vineyard singing "Refiner's Fire." I mean, it's 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 there. But if you take that chunk of ore, ore often comes with multiple different metals, all all that are found together. If you try to pull it apart piece by piece without that refining process, it would take you forever and I don't think you could do it. But yet when you apply heat, everything becomes pliable. And so the vision the Lord gave me was that we have sins that are just so embedded in who we are. They're in us, they're in every cell, they wind throughout us, they're the lies we tell ourselves, they're the lies that we've been told. And, and, and yes, you can try and pick at those. You can try and just chew at that without a trial. But it's going to be so much harder. And so this is the reason the Lord gives us these trials is because when we finally break down everything that we are and when we finally turn to him and just say, I am yours, you need to come in and work in this, we're in that pliable state and all of a sudden the really bad stuff has floated to the top and he just scrapes it and sends it away and now you are left with a much more pure substance and yes there's gonna be multiple renditions of this you know Jesus and James didn't say if you have trial they said when you have trial and they didn't just say one there's gonna be multiples but you have a church here you have a community you have a cell group you hopefully have friends. You hopefully have John and Rich's numbers. You can call my number. The, the point is there are people that want to walk through this with you. And if you're still in the state where you're even too afraid to approach those people, then cry out to God because he already knows. He knows it's there. You, you can deny it and you can try and hide it, but he wants to pull that out of you. He doesn't want that to be in, entwined in your being. Lord, we just thank you. You are just such a mighty, powerful God, Lord. We just praise you for who you are. We praise you for the heavens you created, the earth you created, Lord. We praise you for our own creation. And Lord, you know that each one of us has claimed the knowledge of good and evil, Lord. Each one of us has fallen, and yet you have a plan to bring each of us to the state of your Son, to bring each of us before you in purity, a spotless sacrifice, Lord, and Lord, you have planned eternity for each of us. We have our our numbered days here on this earth, Lord, but we know they are fruitful when we look to you and we see fulfillment in who you created us to be and how we can work in you. And so, Lord, we just pray that as we walk through our refining trials, Lord, that You would just give us the grace, Lord. You would give us the relief when it gets too much for us, Lord. It's not about how much we can take. It's how much we can give to you to carry for us. And so, Lord, we just thank you that in every way you have an answer to to come to us and to, to work in us. And we just pray this week that, yeah, you would just bless us, that you would just bring to mind the things that we need to work in, Lord, that you would bring to mind the, maybe there's trials we're going through that we don't even realize they're trials, Lord. But just that you would bring those to us, Lord, and like the classic footprints in the sand, Lord, that we would just see how you've already been carrying us. And that uh, you continue to carry us each and every day. Amen.